I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 36. If you're picking up the Bibles that are in the seats in front of you, you'll find it on page 614. Uh, You'll also see that the text is printed as an insert in your bulletin if you want to follow along with that as well. I am, if you're using the Bibles, whatever version you're using, if you're wanting to know what version I'm using, it's the English Standard Version. And that's what will be printed in the insert. Now, a few weeks ago, those who were here a number of weeks ago and heard it, you remember Jewel Morrison? She sang for us. and She sang a prelude. Uh, that song that we know is Them Bones. And she did such a good job. I told her afterwards, I said, I was so inspired that I'm going to someday preach on that text. And I'm going to wait till the Sunday that she can come back and she can preach on that and in two weeks. She's going to sing that again, and I'm going to preach on that text, which is Ezekiel 37. So we're going to get ready for that uh, by looking at uh, Ezekiel 36 this morning. And this passage is famous in its own right, and especially the, the first few passages or verses of 25 to 27. Here, let me give you the context uh, for this chapter, what's going on. Jerusalem has fallen to Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon. The nation of Judah has ended. The northern kingdom of Israel had ended, had been broken up about a century earlier, and the inhabitants of the northern kingdom had been deported throughout the Assyrian Empire of that time. Now, about a decade earlier than this, Judah had already succumbed to Nebuchadnezzar. The king had already taken a good many of the people, and especially the nobles, and had taken them to Babylon. Daniel was one of those exiles, as was Ezekiel. Now, what Nebuchadnezzar did was he kept Jerusalem intact. He kept a king of Judah on the throne. But then that king who was Zedekiah, revolted. And he brought upon himself the final destruction upon Jerusalem and Judah. Nebuchadnezzar went back and he destroyed the city. Ezekiel had prophesied that this would take place. And he had even explained why. It was for the same reason that all the other prophets had said, namely, for Judah's rebellious sins. Listen into this, to what was said, that Judah would be destroyed, Jerusalem would be destroyed. Even so, that was not going to be the last word for God's people. In verse 24, where we pick up, he now is going to give a word of hope. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. This is the good news of redemption. The people will be brought out of exile. They will be restored to their homeland. God has not forgotten his people of Israel. And by the way, from now on, there will no longer be this Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. They will be referred to as the one covenant people, the house of Israel. But deliverance from exile 
is not the heart of Ezekiel's message. The good news is not merely that God's people will be moved back home, but that a transformation is going to take place in them. So let's begin reading in verse 25 to 29. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people. And I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. I want you to note something here. In these five and a half verses that I've just read, I will, that is God will, occurs eight times. Eight times speaking of what God will do. So we're going to go through these uh, eight things that God is going to do. Look at it again back in verse 25. He says, first of all, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And then in verse 39, 29, excuse me, I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. See, the Jews are in exile. And they're in exile not because a stronger military defeated their military force. That's not the real reason. It was because of their sins. Those sins which received the judgment of God. Now just before the destruction of Jerusalem, God had Ezekiel say this message to the people. This is in chapter 24, verses 13 and 14. On account of your unclean lewdness, because I would have cleansed you, and you were not cleansed from your uncleanness, you shall not be cleansed any more till I have satisfied my fury upon you. I am the Lord. I have spoken. It shall come to pass. I will do it. I will not go back. I will not spare. I will not relent. According to your ways and your deeds, you will be judged, declares the Lord. This is what happened. God punished the people for their uncleanness. But now, now he is giving them a new start by cleansing them. He will sprinkle clean water upon them. Now, this image comes from Numbers in chapter 19, verse 17 and following. And what it describes is what happens when a person becomes unclean. How do you cleanse him? Well, another person who is clean dips a hyssop branch into a bowl of water that's been mixed with ashes of a sin offering. And then he sprinkles it upon the unclean person with that water. With apologies to my immersion, brothers and sisters, you need to know that the Old Testament image of cleansing with water is sprinkling. That's why if you were to read First Peter, you come to the very first verses 1 and 2, it speaks of those who are sprinkled 
with the blood of Christ. He's thinking of those imageries. And so the problem of us all before God is not that we have somehow, you know, we've just grown apart from Him. You know, somehow we've been busy in life when we become distant from God and we just need to know that God wants us just to, to know that He's there for us. Now, the problem is, is that we are unclean before a holy God. And to be brought near to God, we must be cleansed of our sins. We need God to sprinkle us with the water that is mixed with the sacrifice of our lamb. So he promises a a new start. He next promises this new heart in verse 26. And I will give you a new heart. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So God will cleanse his people. He'll give them a new start. And he will give them a new heart. Now God had again spoken about this earlier through Ezekiel, back in chapter 11. Let me read to you verses 19 and 20. He says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. The heart problem of the people of Israel is that they were stubborn. God puts it this way in chapter 3, verse 7. All the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. So what can they do about it? Well, actually, nothing. They need a heart transplant that only God can perform. And what he is saying is, he's going to take out that heart of stone, and he's going to replace it with a heart of flesh. What he means by that is a heart that is malleable to his teaching. It's responsive to God. And so, likewise, this is the truth for all of us. We must be given new hearts. The heart of the old nature is made of stone. It cannot respond to the gospel. It cannot be molded into a pure heart that is true to the Lord. So let's see what's happening here. God will give a new start to his people by cleansing them. He will give them a new heart so that they can be responsive to him. And he will give them a new spirit. Again, back in verse 26. He says, a new spirit I will put within you. And then in verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So he's got here a new heart, a new spirit. They're close in meaning. Heart is kind of a wider embracing concept. The heart is the the seat of the intellect and the will and the the emotions. It's there in control of things. But the, the spirit is that impulse that drives us and regulates our desires and, and our thoughts and our, our conduct. We naturally have a stubborn stone heart with the impulse to sin, to disobey, to transgress God's law. Without that change of heart, that's just the direction we're going to go. 
And the Lord God will put a new spirit in us by putting His Holy Spirit in us. And by that, then, He will give to us a desire to follow God's commandments. That's what happens in salvation. Again, in our natural state, we're not going to change because we cannot do, well, what God actually commanded the house of Israel to do. Let me read what he, what he says in Ezekiel 18.31. He says to them, Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. All right, do that. Well, God received from Israel what he receives from us modern sinners, just kind of blank stares. We can hear this, but we don't perceive it. Now, some of us might think that we are responding. We become religious. We do good works. We dress up our hearts to to look pretty on the outside, and we, we feel nice feelings in our spirits, particularly when we come to church and we feel spiritual. But we give ourselves away when we fail to receive and to understand the gospel message. And that message teaches us first how utterly sinful we really are. Until we grasp that, we don't understand. We have to understand how our hope rests solely, solely in the work of, of Christ there on the cross. We can't have the understanding that I had when I was growing up in a gospel-preaching Presbyterian church. And if you would ask me, are you a Christian? Do you know you're saved? Well, yes, I know. Well, no, I wouldn't say I know that I'm saved. I would say I hope that I am saved because I try to do the right things and do enough good works so that I will be saved. That is not the gospel. So as Jesus said, we must be born again in order to understand, in order to enter into the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit must first do that regenerating work in our hearts. If he doesn't do it, nothing is going to happen. But when he does do it, then it allows us to understand, to to possess faith, to repent of our sins. And even then the Holy Spirit will cause us to walk in the statues of the Lord. So, what is God going to do? He's going to give a new start to his people by cleansing them. He's going to give a new heart that is responsible to him. He's going to give a new spirit through his own spirit that will cause them to walk in his ways. And then he's going to give them a new relationship. Look in verse 28. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And what's probably a little bit more accurate to say is this, is that the Lord will renew his covenant relationship with his people. He had earlier had that covenant relationship. They had had that with their God, but they had broken their covenant vows. Way back at Mount Sinai, After the the giving of the commandments, the people God made this following covenant vow. It's it's Exodus 24, verse 7. All that the Lord has spoken, 
we will do. And we will be obedient. Now suffice it to say, they did not keep that vow. And so God divorced them. And to impress this point on them, he sent another prophet, Hosea. And he had Hosea uh, marry an unfaithful wife, and, but she bore him a son, and he had to, that son had a tough name to bear. Here's the name of the son. The Lord said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I'm not your God. But even then, the very next verse, God goes on to say this. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. So this is the same covenant renewal that Hosea is prophesying about. Ezekiel is speaking of that now. But it's also the extension of the covenant relationship, not just with the people of Israel, but beyond Israel as well. Because people of all nations are going to be gathered into the covenant. And so later, many years later, the Apostle Paul, he could speak to Gentiles, those who have become followers of Christ. He would say this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, look, at one time you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you ones who were far off, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Ezekiel's vision is being fulfilled through Jesus Christ and the incoming of the nations of being part of the house of Israel. We now, here in this sanctuary, are the people of the Lord. And the Lord is our God. So what do we have here? We have a new start, a new heart. We have a new spirit and a new relationship. These are the great works that the Lord has promised the house of Israel. Now the remaining verses present the results of the Lord's work in and for his people. Look with me beginning in the latter part of verse 29. He says, I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. And then to verse 33. Thus says the Lord God, On the day I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. What he's promising here is prosperity. Verse 33 connects becoming clean, that cleansing, with 
with prosperity. On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, that's when the conditions will change for the good. Again, this is just simply following back on what had been promised centuries earlier. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy 28, 1 and 2. God has said, look, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Well, these were great promises to come with the covenant. But the people broke their vows. They disobeyed. They lost it. But God is bringing them back into that covenant relationship. And now he will prosper them. So what am I teaching here? What's the passage teaching? Are we getting into the prosperity gospel? Well, let's, let's think about this. Do the preachers of the prosperity gospel do as Ezekiel does? Do they teach repentance? Do they take the time to list our sins that make us unclean, the idols that we have replaced God with? Does the prosperity gospel teach, first of all, the holiness of God? And that what matters most of all is the glorifying of God's name because that is what is composed of Ezekiel's message. Now Ezekiel here, he is speaking of material prosperity. But even that prosperity has as much more to do than with just you know, doing well in life. Because the primary blessing is to return home. To return back to their spiritual home. For the land of Israel, with Jerusalem in particular, it represents living in the kingdom of God in his presence. This is not a message of prospering in, in exile. It's a message of being brought home and brought home to our Lord. This is a passage that to a degree, it was fulfilled in the literal return of the Jews. They did return 70 years later after being exiled. And over time, there was some prosperity, but never to the degree promised in this and in all the other Old Testament visions. And even now, Jews look to a greater fulfillment. But we, we who believe in the Messiah, that the Messiah has come, don't we even now see that it's being fulfilled? Because we are prosperous in Jesus Christ. We possess the riches of Christ. Let me name a few of them. The forgiveness of our sins. All of our sins are forgiven. The the riches of being cleansed. Of being given that new start of being given a new heart and and a new spirit, of having this new relationship with God. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? It sounds like Ezekiel. But let's continue. What else have we been given? We've been given good works that we actually can do to the glory of God. We've been given the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We've been given the seal of the Holy Spirit that assures we are going to receive our inheritance and we cannot lose it. 
And the list can continue. But I think already we've made clear that we are rich, we are prosperous indeed. All right, so the people are going to be prosperous. They're going to be fruitful. And their numbers are going to multiply. Look in verse 37 and 38. Thus says the Lord God, This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. So God has promised that the numbers of his people, he had promised this to, to, to Abraham, that they would be like the sands of the sea. Now Israel did eventually grow again, but it is the spread of the gospel where this prophecy is being truly fulfilled. Because over the centuries, untold millions over the ages have been born into the kingdom of God. So that when we come to Revelation in chapter 7, verse 9, here's the vision we're given. After this, I look to behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That's the vision that is before us. So there will be prosperity. There will be great numbers of of people who are brought into God's kingdom. Now, when these kind of fortunes take place, our people tend to become proud. But Ezekiel here says that the people will be humbled. Look with me in verses 31 and 32. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. These unmerited blessings of God is going to lead the people to true repentance. God makes a very enlightening enlightening statement there in verse 32 about his own motivation for why he is going to do all of this great work. He says, it is not for your sake that I will act. Well, for whose sake will he act? For his own. The verses just before our passage, verses 22 and 23 in the same chapter, listen to them. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. It's a humbling thought, isn't it? The great work of salvation that is accomplished is not because God felt indebted to us. Boy, he needed us. 
you know, were such good folks, and boy, he'd really like to get us back, and he thought we were worthy. No, it's not for those reasons. It's for concern for his own glory. And so we come to the last three verses, which express this concern for his glory, beginning in verse 36. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. To increase their people like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock of Jerusalem during her appointed feast, so shall, I waste, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. That phrase, know that I am the Lord. That's the theme of the whole book of Ezekiel. It occurs 82 times in the book. Evidently, God wants to be known. He wants to be known for who he is. He wants to be glorified. This is God's chief aim in our creation and certainly in our salvation. By golly, our catechism got it right. What's that first question? What is the chief end of man? What's the answer? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Let's recap what we've gone through here. We're going to use God's promises to the house of Israel for our model. We learn that God has promised us, that is, those who have called on Jesus' name, he's promised us a new start. He will cleanse us from all of our uncleannesses. He'll give us a new heart whereby we can can be responsive to him. He will give us a new spirit whereby we'll we'll actually desire to be obedient to him. He'll give us a new relationship to him. Whereas he's going to be our God and we his people. We're going to belong to him. And in this new relationship we will be prosperous as we possess the riches that are in Christ. We'll multiply in number as people from all people groups are are brought into God's kingdom. We will not take pride in our new relationship and prosperity. All the more we'll be humbled as we accept that we're saved, not, not for anything good that was found in us, not that God needed us, but for the sake of his own glory, that which God prizes above all else. It is to his glory It is for his name's sake that we worship him, that we live for him, that we take joy in him. Let's pray. We do give you praise, our great God, that you are the Lord. You are the Lord God. There is no other. There is no other creator. And certainly there is no other deliverer. And may we, our great God, all the more desire and be humbled, be given that desire, that spirit to obey you, to serve you, to live for you, and to find in that obedience, to find in that 
uh, earnest desire to follow your commands, all the more the great joy that there is in knowing you as our God and serving you and living for you and worshiping you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.